And welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host. And I got to tell you, <laughs> this is not exactly the way I planned for 2023 to, um, to unfold, at least the beginning of it. So let me explain. Well, first off, let me, let me thank my, my listeners in New York and in Washington, D.C., uh, especially those of you who've, who've hung on while I was you know, off for a little bit. Um, well, and I was off for longer than you know, because I put a, puck, a couple of shows in uh, the proverbial can, as we say, so I could, uh, you know, be, because I had some plans uh, <laughs> that I was thinking about. So, so first off, let me, let me, again, welcome my audience members in New York and in Washington, D.C., and uh, I encourage you to support these radio stations. Uh, WBII in particular is, uh, is really struggling, and we need your commitments, we need your donations, we need your support um, for, the, for the radio station. So, you know, I do ask that you, that you do support the radio station, that you, you go online to uh, www.give2wbai.org and make a contribution of any size. Become a BAI buddy, if you will. Um, make a one-time donation, whatever... What, whatever you can do that would help the station. We greatly appreciate it. You can also go online at 212-209-2950 and uh, make a donation that way. Same thing, one-time donation, time donation, uh, become a sustainable member of the station by becoming a, a buddy. Um, and of course that goes for Washington DC too on WPFW. So if you're listening in Washington or if you're listening online or on Facebook Live, which I haven't been on for a while, so and I'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, then, you know, if, if, I ask that you support these stations. So I, I do ask that you support WPFW, and you can go to 202-588-9739, make a donation there, or go online at wpfwdc.org slash donate. And, uh, you know, make sure that when you do, you mention that you're, you're doing it in the name of Resistance Radio with John Kane. Um, I would greatly appreciate it. And, and, and you know, it tells, tells people that you that you enjoy or at least have your interest and curiosity uh, picked when you are piqued, as, you, as they would say, um, by the content that I provide on this show. Um, all right, so let me get to it. You know, I, I titled this show, you know, Where's John Cain Ben? Well, on January 23rd, <laughs> I had scheduled um, a full knee replacement surgery on my left knee. And, you know, so that's over a month ago. And so I went in and had the surgery done. And by almost all accounts, it, uh, it was very successful. I was walking around, you know, essentially same day to some extent. But within days, I was walking around without a limp. I had no pain. I went for over a week where the PT was, was cake. I was, you know, I was walking around. I was going to my grandkids' basketball games. Uh, it was, I was fine. But then... About 10 days in after the, the surgery, I started noticing there was, you know, something wasn't feeling quite the same. And by, uh, that, by Friday, February the 3rd, um, I was beginning to wonder if I, was, if I had developed an infection. Of course, that's 
the weekend, and it's Friday evening that, that this thing got creeps up. I still went to a meeting on, on Saturday and, uh, and met with some folks, and, and I was able to walk and everything. But by Saturday night and into Sunday morning, I could not. Uh, it, the, the pain was unbearable. It was excruciating. And my, it was a little hard to see if the um, incision, the, the, the surgical site, was, um, was red because I had so much bruising associated with the surgery and, as it turns out, with the infection as well. So I, it, was, it was a pretty brutal infection. Um, on, so on Sunday, I put a call into my, my surgical team. Of course, it's on the weekend, so I know I'm going through a phone system. Uh, I'm waiting for the doctor on call to give me a call back. And I did that Sunday morning, didn't get a call back. It starts getting into the afternoon, and now I'm starting to get worried because this thing is, is you know, really warm. I'm starting to get a little feverish and that kind of stuff. I decided I'm going to go to one of the local urgent care uh, in, in town here, and, uh, and that they weren't really any help. Uh, you know, the, the doctor there just, I don't know if, if he just was entering stuff in wrong, but he, he ended up writing a script for amoxicillin listing that I was having facial cellulitis, which is something you get from a toothache. Um, so I never even got the script. After I got back from running around from urgent care, I put another call into my surgical team, and this time I did get a call back, and, and he was one of the uh, orthopedic uh, surgeons who happened to be on call in the emergency room and he, at uh, Erie County uh, Medical Center, ECMC. And he said, you could wait till tomorrow. He said, but I would advise you to come into the emergency room tonight. So that was Sunday night. So I go in Sunday night, and of course, the experience of going through an emergency room it, downtown uh, in Buffalo was, you know, is, is something that is almost undescribable, but any city that's got a uh, downtown hospital can imagine what that was like. So, but I managed to get through there after four hours. And while I thought that was an extremely long time, everybody said, oh, yeah, you got through there pretty quickly. So that's what I had to go through. I had to go through sitting in an emergency room, waiting room for four hours without any medication, uh, waiting for, you know, this, waiting to be seen. So finally, when I got in there, the, uh, the, the doctor that I spoke with earlier uh, came and took a look at my knee and he says, wow, that looks like crap. <laughs> and so the first thing that they decided to do, even before giving me any antibiotics, was to, you know, try to give me a, uh, reduce the pain a little bit. And they did that. Uh, but then they came in with a needle <laughs> and they stick it into your leg and they poke it in and out of that same um, initial needle, needle site and they, they run it in and out of your leg and they draw out some of the material, the, the stuff, the goo that's in there in that infection. And they squeeze the knee. So this was like, you know, probably the worst case scenario for me. Somebody who was, you know, poking a needle in and out of my knee, squeezing it to try to get all of the infectious material, uh, you know, into, into a tube. And it was a good size uh, cylinder that they filled up, you know, probably, I would say eight ounces or, or more. So they take that and then they run that to the lab and they begin to, to um, establish a culture off of that to determine what the exact um, bacteria is that, that caused the infection. And, and of course, that's a big concern because we have all these, these resistant um, uh, strains of, uh, of uh, bacteria. And it turns out it wasn't one of those. It, wasn't, it was more of a garden variety, albeit aggressive as hell. Um, bacteria that, that 
was not resistant to, um, to antibiotics. So they, uh, they began, well, first they put me on, on, on a general antibiotic until they got the cultures back, which took you know, probably, I don't know, 24 or 48 hours. Uh, I was admitted in the hospital. I was in the hospital for over a week. I didn't get out until um, February 13th, which is when I was discharged. Um, and I come out of the hospital in feeling about as bad as I did when I went in, because now what they call opening you up to flush out the, the, the site. So I had another surgery, essentially, which was on February 6th. Um, that was called the clean-out surgery. And that isn't just about, you know, running a hose through your leg. This is you cutting away tissue that has been, you know, damaged by the infection. And so they, they cut away. And, you know, and they, so they cut away all of the infected tissue uh, which really is where between the infection and, and, the, and the tissue removal was where all the pain came from. By the time, you know, I come out of that, that surgery and, uh, and I'm, I'm in a room, I'm just battling the pain from, from now the, from the clean-out surgery, which is what essentially what I'm still battling some, to some extent. Um, but so this whole thing takes over a month. I've been, you know, I got home on the, on the 13th. I, I, uh, they sent me home. With a with a pick line in my arm, um, so I can have my wife administer antibiotics intravenously to me uh, three times a day, and so this is where I have been for the last month. Now, I did put a few shows in the can, so uh, because I knew I would probably be a little under the weather, I didn't know I was going to have the second round of of trouble with this thing, um, but I did, and so. I really couldn't put a show together, you know, so there were, I needed two more shows in the can, so to speak, and, and I didn't have those. So, so this is my first show um, that I'm recording here in quite some time now, and, and it feels like I've been gone forever uh, from, from my standpoint. Uh, I know probably not so much from yours because they, they could play those old shows for you. Um, but I, yeah, I wanted to tell the story, not and certainly not for sympathy or, or, or any of this other stuff. I, for one thing, I wanted to explain why I've been gone. But there's, there's a bit of a cautionary tale here. And, and, and my biggest takeaway is that I went from a Wednesday, the first week in, in February, feeling pretty good to being almost fatally ill within a few days. So, I mean, for all the talk about COVID and, and cancer and, you know, all of these, these diseases and ailments that can, that can affect us, um, RSV, all, all these things, you know, th this just basic infection that got into, uh, into a place and found good lodging, a nice, warm, humid space within, uh, within my knee to, to set up camp and, and raise a family is, is what I experienced. And... The infection was so bad that it was running through my bloodstream. They were doing uh, echocardiograms and that kind of stuff to make sure that my heart wasn't uh, getting affected by any of this. Um, went through you know, several tests, sonograms and x-rays and, and all kinds of other things you know, to, to follow this stuff. Um, and uh, you know, they, as far as I'm concerned, the, the care that I got was, was not just adequate. It was, it was great. I mean, I, the nurses and the doctors, I, I think everybody was... Was, was pretty good, including the, the initial surgery. 
So I don't have anything that I can point to and say, see, there's that, that's what did me in. And, and the same, the doctor, doctors say the same thing. My surgeon said, you know, he only has about a 1% infection rate. So that's how low on the scale this was. And, and frankly, he said, mine was probably the worst infection that he's ever seen. And, and, and of course, I couldn't blame, oh, you're a smoker. No, I'm not a smoker. I'm not a drinker. I'm not a smoker. I'm, I don't, I take no medications whatsoever. Um, which, you know, probably helps me in the long run, but these are the kinds of things that they, that they look to, not necessarily to play the blame game, but as, just as an explanation. So I, I think it's, it's, it's tough because these, we are all very vulnerable. I mean, I'm, I, I think I'm a pretty tough guy. I mean, I think I've got a pretty high tolerance for pain. Um, and, you know, frankly, I'm not the kind of guy that's going to bellyache over, you know, having a couple of extra days of, you know, a recovery from, you know, from a surgery. But I went from having, you know, a good path forward on recovery to having a major setback that now has me not where I was, you know, two days after surgery. So, you know, I guess my, my caution or, or my, my warning or advice to people is that, look, you got to take this stuff seriously. And, you know, infection is deadly. And this was running so much through my bloodstream that the, the potential for me to go septic, as they say, was, um, was not just possible. It was imminent if I had not gotten uh, seen as, as soon as I had. And if I do have a criticism, um, I guess I have two. And one of them is that when I got home from the surgery, they only gave me like three days supply of antibiotics. And they say it's fairly prophylactic. It, it's, it's basically, you know, just, you know, like extra protection after the surgery. It, uh, so it's a general, general antibiotic and, and that's what they give you if only for a couple of days. And, you know, so if the infection, that bacteria was there from the beginning, uh, it might've been back on its heels for three days. But after not taking any more antibiotics, the, the infection was free to run. The other thing is, I think a better uh, post-op instruction would have been, uh, would be advised. I think if I knew what to look for in terms of, um, in, in terms of an infection and how long to wait and how long not to wait and that kind of stuff, you know, my, my fever didn't jump real high or anything else. All I knew was my knee hurt. And, you know, I was told from the beginning when I first had the surgery that, yes, they're going to shoot you up with these pain blockers and that'll give you a couple of days of relief. But once those wear off, you're going to get pain. So was the pain I was feeling 10 days in, you know, just the pain that I was anticipating, you know, four days in? I, I, you know, I didn't know. And, you know, so you, you end up being home trying to figure this stuff out a little bit on the fly. And so I did, uh, you know, I, I, I did ultimately go back in and, and, uh, and got admitted. Now I'm, I'm 63 years old and I've never been, uh, spent a week in a hospital before. This is the first time I've ever spent this long a time in a hospital. And I've been pretty much bedridden since I've been home. This today's one of the exceptions that I actually came out and got in studio. I said, well, I gotta, I gotta get a show. Um, you know, I gotta get, get a show recorded here. So, so that's why, that's, you know, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing this show. I wanted to give both the explanation, but, it, but again, I got nobody to throw under a bus here. You know, I think my surgeon, has, you know, did a great job. Um, I just got the, the, the short straw on, on infection, I guess. And, um, you know, I, I'd love to be able to blame somebody, you know, the manufacturer of the hardware or, or whatever else, but 
but I, I really can't, and at least, at least not. There's nothing to indicate at this point that, that anybody's responsible other than just just plain bad luck that you know some bacteria managed to find lodging in my uh, in in the in the surgery process. So I've got I, I did, again I have no no criticisms, but it what this was was a real eye opening experience to me to to tell me teach me about my own mortality for somebody who's always felt somewhat invincible. You know, I, I'm not afraid to jump to the front line on something. Uh, this, this doesn't make me gun shy, but what it has done is, is taught me that, and, and it really has nothing to do with age, because you know, I could have been 20 years younger and still have the same thing. But what it taught me is that anybody can, you know, can get, be, you know, get affected by this stuff, and infected by this stuff. And I think it's critical that we are knowledgeable. I'm not, you know, like I have another knee that's probably going to get surgery on it in a couple of years. I'm not gun shy about getting that done, although I'm going to wait till this one's pretty well healed up. Um, so, and I know many people who have gotten knee surgery. Some had tougher times than others, but, but nobody that I know of had an infection. Um, but, it, but it can happen. And it not only can happen, it's dangerous. It is, uh, you know, it's, it's potentially deadly. So that has been the way I rung in, <laughs> or rang in, uh, 2023. Not what I had planned. I, obviously, there's been a lot that's happened uh, since then, and you know, there's, there's probably you know, plenty to, to talk about um, in future shows. Obviously, this, this train derailment out in Palestine, uh, Ohio, um, which you know comes after me talking for years about bomb trains and and the dangers of uh, these these rail systems and the hazardous materials they're carrying. Um, there's the the amount of gun violence and uh, you know mass shootings continue almost on a every other day basis. You hear of another one. Uh, my my fight with um, with schools over the mascot issue continues to rage on. Uh, as many of you recall, I. Uh, was a part of pushing New York State to issue a a ban on the use of native mascots, uh, and then you have a, a Super Bowl with you know with with a team with a native mascot you know winning it all and and all of that's put on public display, um, and you also see some schools that you know most schools are complying with with the state's order um, and other states that have issued similar orders. But you find these schools like Chester, Vermont, that that just continue to dig in. The school that I that I fought this fight over in the first place, Cambridge, New York, continues to dig in. They're they're actually appealing and just filed their appeal for the original order from New York State Department of Education that ordered them to change the mascot back to uh, you know, to to retire the mascot before they issued the statewide ban. And then they filed this appeal, which seems almost absurd because part of their argument was that they were being singled out, which they obviously aren't anymore. That certainly a moot point uh, once the uh, NYSED issued a statewide ban. But we see all of this stuff continue. So look, I may have been gone for, for a month. And those of you who follow me on, on Facebook and, uh, and social media realize that I haven't been my talkative self. I haven't uh, you know, contributed a whole lot to many of the discussions. And part of it is, I'm, I'm going to tell you, between being in pain and being on pain meds, I haven't always had the clearest head uh, over the last uh, you know, the last month. So uh, I'm getting there, uh, and I do look. I do plan to do more. I mean, I, I wanted to. I wanted to kick open 2023 with doing 
you know, more of my podcast, my Let's Talk Data podcast. I wanted to kick it open with doing, uh, not only doing these shows, but hitting the road and doing some, uh, some speaking engagements. I did do a, uh, a Zoom um, lecture at Rutgers University last week uh, in the midst of all of this, and, and I was able to get through it. But I hope to do more. I'm working with some folks down south to do, you know, possibly some appearances at HBCUs and maybe do some events on free speech television. So there's a lot that that I was hoping to be uh, start getting started on. In fact, part of the reason for getting getting the knee surgery was so I can get it done and out of the way. So by you know after a month or two, I could have been uh, you know up and running again. And I probably lost about a month of uh, that recovery time. So everything's going to get pushed off a little bit. But um, look, I know the rumor mill can spread and people can begin to wonder you know, what's happened to somebody. So part of the reason I wanted to do this show, because I, do, I don't do a whole lot of shows where I just talk about me, um, but I did think it was important to tell you, the listening audience, uh, both uh, you know, on Facebook, uh, podcasts, uh, WPFW and WBAI, that uh, no, I haven't been taken off the air. Um, and, uh, I, and I didn't you know, have some, you know, some terrible accident or... or I, I just had an elective surgery that just didn't go that well. So um, it is something that I think people should keep in mind. You know, my doctor said he only has a 1% infection rate, but I've heard story after story after story about those people who've gotten infections, especially with hip and knee replacements. So they aren't that rare. Um, even if your surgeon has had a pretty good track record, it doesn't mean that you, you can't be the next one to get the, the, the serious infection. And some infections are worse than others. I had a bad infection, but I didn't have, it wasn't a bacteria that was uh, resistant to antibiotics. So it wasn't the MRSA type and some of these super bugs that, uh, that are out there. I mean, look, we can have conversations about the overuse of antibiotics and, and how that has you know, narrowed some of the field of, of usable antibiotics. And, and it's also, you know, um, caused more and more um, deviations and uh, evolutions of, of these bacteria to be able to be uh, more persistent and more resistant. Uh, in my situation, it turns out that I could have used you know, any number of uh, antibiotics for, for this bacteria. But you know, this, is, this is kind of the world that we live in. Now, I, I have no idea what all this costs in the long run, and, and that's not even really that much of a factor as far as I'm concerned. But it is, um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough place to get sick, any place, really. But, um, you know, I, as, I, as I get older and a little bit more in, in touch with my, my own mortality, um, I realize that I have to take care of myself a little bit more. <laughs> Crazy as it is, I, I slipped and fell off of my, uh, my deck, my steps, my deck, like three days before my surgery. Not exactly the thing that you want to do before going into surgery. But... Um, you know, this is, the, we just have to be more careful. And I, and I'm, when I say we, I mean me, I have to be more careful. But to, to those of you who are listening and, and, and do have, you know, procedures that are scheduled, you know, you just have to be wary and be careful and, and do everything you possibly can to avoid infection. Because um, you know, the, the best surgical team and the best hospital in the world, um, you know, really has the odds stacked against them when it comes to some of these uh, these these infections that uh, that are out there. So, I you know again I did want to do this show. I wanted to to tell the story and, and explain to 
people, you know, what I went through. Maybe there's something teachable or learnable from, uh, from, from my experience. Um, I probably won't start physical therapy again until next week or the week after. Um, I'm still managing with, with different pain meds um, how to, you know, get, get through the worst of the pain that's still associated with, uh, with the clean-out surgery. But uh, it does seem like the pain is beginning to subside somewhat, so I become I can become less dependent on trying to manage the pain with uh, with pain meds. Um, but this is you know look, like I said, anybody, uh, everybody is vulnerable, and and anybody can get sick, and uh, even somebody like me who who really can dodge the bullet, you know, most of the time, um, I didn't this time, you know with the exception of, you know, getting through it, I guess, and which is what I'm in the process of doing. So I want to thank you for bearing with me. Um, you know, I know this isn't the kind of show that I usually do, but I did, uh, you know, I did want to talk about, uh, about, you know, what I went through. Um, sometimes a shared experience is one of those things that uh, can have value to people who are looking at this kind of thing. And I would by no means discourage people from getting the knee replacement surgery if you need it. And I got to a point where I felt like I did need it. Um, especially if I wanted to become, or, or not just maintain but and remain active, but to become perhaps even more active in the next couple of years, um, I felt like I had to get get this done. So, so that's that's the choice. That's the choice that I made. Um, but it is, you know, it's it is really critical. I mean, it's really critical that we we do everything we possibly can to to uh, keep ourselves healthy and to to maintain. Um, you know, as good a hygiene as possible, especially as we're going through this stuff. Um, all right, so let me let me take another break here and uh, again mention the stations that uh, that carry this show. Of course, I'm on WBAI in New York City, uh, and I'm grateful to be on WBAI. Uh, it is it is a station that has consistently provided a platform for Native voices. Uh, they've given me a uh, a time slot for uh, I don't even know how many years now. I've been I've been doing shows of uh, in one way or another for over 10 years now. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to WBAI for, for having me on the air, but I won't be on the air if, uh, if listeners don't support the radio station. So again, I ask that if you listen to this program, Resistance Radio with John Kane on WBAI, or if you're you know, in New York and you're, I don't care if you're catching on a podcast or on Facebook, um, I ask that you support your community radio station, WBAI, and to do so, you can just call 212-209-2950. Make a, make a donation of any size. I mean, you, you can't assume that um, all, all these programs are always going to be here. You can't assume that WBAI is always going to be here. We, we have bills to pay, and, uh, and it is only through your generosity that we, we can meet those obligations, not only for the the paid employees but for you know the 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 space the the studio space the transmission space all of that all, you know all of those costs so uh again i ask that you go to the pledge line 212-209-2950 or go online to give to that's g-i-v-e the number two wbai.org and make a donation of of any size anything that you can do and Look, if you're already a WBAI buddy, perhaps you can add another five dollars to it. I mean, we're we're coming out of you know the 
the economic collapse caused by by COVID, and regardless of where where anybody feels politically on uh, and economically uh, as it relates to politics, if you have the resources and you can support one of the things, this is I mean this is one of the things that you can do, you know. In 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 time after time, we always hear what can I do to help? What can I do to help? You know, social justice. Well, this station is a big part of that. The programming on this station. Uh, is predominantly about social justice. So you, if you want to take one step, and, and it can be as big a step as you want to take it, to, to helping these causes, then support WBAI. Again, 212-209-2950 or give to WBAI.org. If you're in Washington, D.C. Or, or listening on WPFW Jazz and Justice Radio, or if you... Um, you know, if you feel the need to support a community-based jazz and justice radio, um, then this is the station you need to support if you're in the Washington area. So I ask that you go to 202-588-9739, make a pledge, make a donation, do it in the name of Resistance Radio with John Kane. You can go online as well to go to wpfwdc.org slash donate. Um, look, I greatly appreciate the donations that you guys make towards these to these fine stations, but I don't get that money. That this is this, this is the the money that we need to to sustain the operation. My show is something that I look at the time slot as a gift to me. So I give back by giving the content, by giving this the, this program, giving the the news and information, giving the the hi historical and cultural backgrounds of of so many of the issues, giving a native perspective to the issues that face us all. That's what I do with the, with the space that, I, that I've been given. So I have, you know, I have provided materials and, and premiums in the, in the past. It's not something that, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm that prone to do. Um, I will say that anybody who listens to this program, who is interested in, uh, in any of the material that I talk about, you can reach out to me, and, and I'll, I'll help see that you get it. But it's, it's a quid pro quo. I'll help you, but you got to help the station. And while I'm, while I'm not trying to hawk goods on, on this program, I am trying to hawk the program, I guess. So I am telling you to donate to WBAI and WPFW. Uh, it's, it's, it's critical, especially now, with the politics being as polarized. Look, when, when the mascot issue can be turned into a right versus left. I mean, it's crazy. I, I've mentioned this before. Native people, we're almost taken out of the, out of the conversation when it comes to the, these mascot issues. It, it, the, the right wants to say, oh, it's just the liberal woke media and the liberal woke elite that's, uh, you know, that's just trying to take away their, 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 child, you know, their childhoods or something like that. They want to pretend that somehow we're not in the, in the room. The, the, this battle over mascots, that's been our battle. We've been doing this for, for 50 or 60 years. Yes, we do have allies that have really stepped up, especially as of late. Not only did we benefit from the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, but we've also seen other, not just marginalized people, but, but, but white folks really come out and say, yeah, this is unacceptable. I mean, 
Look, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if blackface is no longer acceptable, that redface should not be acceptable either. But people dig in. And in, were it not for the support that we've gotten from other peoples, not just Native peoples, um, we probably wouldn't have seen the Washington football team change its name. We wouldn't have seen the, the Cleveland baseball team change its name. We wouldn't have seen all these Columbus statues taken down at the same time Confederate statues were taken down. Yeah, we... We, we did, we had a real sense of camaraderie. Look, in, the, in the, this period of COVID, we haven't had the meetings. We haven't had the gatherings and the rallies and the get-togethers like we've had in the past. And, and I'm hoping that we can become more directly social in some of our, these social justice movements because I, I, I think we have been somewhat detached. But as I said, one of the ways that you can support some of these movements is supporting places like WBAI and WPFW. But I do appreciate the allyship. But, but it's a huge mistake for anybody to say that this is not being pushed forward, the mascot issue in particular, by Native people. This is our fight. And we've, we've asked and we've enlisted, we've solicited support from white folks, from black folks, from uh, uh, people of color you know, all over the country. Because... We know that our voice is small. I mean, we, left, we represent less than one-tenth of one percent of the U.S. population. You know, when, when Barack Obama once claimed, you know, everybody said, oh, yeah, he came out in support of uh, the Washington football team changing its name. He, he gave a quote, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but what he said was something along the lines that if I had a team and if that team had a name that a significant number of people found offensive, I'd think about changing it. I mean, that's like four hypotheticals in one statement. And, and, and at the end, he said he'd still only think about changing it. But what he did was he, he said, and if a significant number of people you know, found it troublesome or problematic, you know, by most standards, Native people, in terms of numbers, we don't represent a significant number of people on anything, whether it's you know, at the ballot box, which is why I never advocate for Native people to vote, or, or, or whether it's you know, trying to lobby one of the reasons I fought this, for this ban to come out of the New York State Department of Education was because I didn't want to go through the, the, the um, legislative process because I think it's totally corrupt. I think it's bank morally bankrupt. There's been a bill sitting in, in the state legislature for several years that hasn't moved. Or to the extent that it has moved, it moves forward and then it moves backwards. So... The idea of trying to pander to the right or the left in, you know, in state politics or federal politics is, is just something that I'm not going to be a part of. Now, I did, I did advise those people, especially from Cambridge, by all means, push your legislators, push the state, and, and maybe they will pass a law. But, but for me, I thought they had everything they needed already, and the New York State Department of Education had all the authority they needed to, to make this ban, and they ultimately agreed and did so. Now, maybe the legislature will follow suit and pass a law after the fact. That's kind of the way it goes. I think about my friends uh, in Maine who were fighting uh, Skohegan. There's a great film called Fighting Indians. If you get a chance to check that out by Mark Cooley. Um, it it kind of shows the whole process that we've all gone through in every community where we've had this debate. And, and you know, every defense that, you know, the, the opposition puts up, first of all, oh, it's not offensive because we don't mean it to be offensive. 
then they want to claim that we're not even native people and that it's all the woke liberal elite that wants to do it. You know, then we get attacked by them. I mean, we go through this, this whole process. But in the case of Maine, Scohegan was the last school to have a native mascot. And when the board finally retired it, then the, the state legislature passed a ban. You know, it's, I'm glad they did it, but they could have saved a lot of heartache. And, and that's part of the reason I pushed for this ban in New York State is because I've seen schools, school districts like, like Cambridge, New York, and, and others that just start tearing each other apart. You know, those people who say, yeah, it's time to change it, they get beat up badly by those that dig in. So I will do a couple of shows and, and some updates on, on some of where that is as, as time goes on. Um, but this is, you know, this is kind of where, where these fights go. You know, we, the mascot issue is, is a fight that I really take seriously and, and committed to. And, and it's one that I get some sense of accomplishment out of. Why? Because we're winning it. Look, we're fighting bomb trains. We're fighting pipelines. We're fighting land rights issues. We're fighting the state over, over gaming and building, you know, new stadiums on, on ancestral lands. And we're fighting all of these things. We see, you know, in, in New York, a, a governor that has really almost defied what, what her party claims to represent by vetoing a, a burial sites protection act. And by, you know, by taking a stand against um, against people getting justly compensated for wrongful deaths, I mean, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense that this is supposedly the Democrat. But but for me, having followed this politics for so long, we realize that at some point, the right and the left they meet they they don't just meet in the middle; they meet on the backside too. So it's like. We have to acknowledge what, what the forces are that we're working against, and we got to speak out. One of the things that, that, you know, that I've said many times over, especially as it relates to elections, is, look, I know you, you, people get, get into these voting booths and they feel like they're voting for the lesser of two evils. And, and, you, and you, in all likelihood, you are. You're not voting for the best candidate. You're just not voting for the worst one. But here's the problem. If you don't end that sentiment once you leave that voting booth and start to hold the people who get elected accountable, they're going to always look at those numbers. They're always going to look at those numbers and say, say, look at, look at what a, what a political mandate I have now. And, and if you're not going to hold them accountable, I mean, people should be screaming bloody murder over the, this governor's vetoes. They should be screaming bloody murder over her appointment of a, of a, you know, of a radical right leaning judge for the highest, judgeship in, in New York State. I mean, that's not what Democrats voted for, for Kathy Hochul for. And unfortunately, they didn't have a whole lot to vote for her on, other than that, that she wasn't the Republican. But regardless of who sits in there, regardless who wins, I'm not, and I'm going to tell you, we had, we had more success fighting um, against the Republican governor and George Pataki a number of years ago than we have in any of the Democrats since. Frankly, the Democrats have been terrible. And I, this isn't an endorsement for the Republicans, and, 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 and it's not really an, even an endorsement for, for George Pataki as a Republican you know, governor, but at least we are able to move him. Some of these people are just terrible. 
and you know, and I get it. When it comes to election day, you don't have a whole lot of choices. But every other day you do. You have a choice on what you spend your money on. You have a choice on, on who you reach out to, how much you're going to bolster a movement and be a part of something. I mean, look, we can't just sit back and, and say, well, it's not my job. You know, I said in a previous show, we've got to be innovative. We have got to be innovative and creative about what, about what activism is going to look like, what protests are going to look like. You know, again, that's the reason I, I went the path that I went towards trying to pressure New York Department of Education to do this mascot ban. That's not the path that they were, we were told to take. Oh, you got to do it through the legislature. You got to get the, the state to pass a law. Well, that's not the path that I was going to take. So, I mean, it wasn't, you know, a radical departure, but it was certainly not the path that was oftentimes offered up or laid before us because they know that it's terribly bu bureaucratic and that you can, you can waste your life fighting for some of these, this legislation. I'm, look, I, I know there's families that lost, lost children in some of these sh school shootings that have dedicated their lives to gun control that never seems to come. So by all means, fight it. You know, go down that path. And I'm not saying don't, but don't let that be the only path that you're on. We've got to figure out the, the best way to affect change. And it may not be the one that somebody in a, you know, a three-piece suit is serving up to you. We've got to figure out how to affect people and, and how, to, how to change people. And, and maybe some of it's not pretty. You know, maybe it is being outside somebody's home who's, who's living off the fat of others. But regardless, I don't think that we can, I don't think we have the luxury of sitting back and waiting for the next Messiah, for the next, you know, perfect candidate that's going to fix everything. Because he or she won't. Because by the time a candidate gets to a place where they're even, they can even potentially win, They've already had to compromise so much to get there because of the system, because of the party system, because of the electoral system, all of it. So we have to find the means to affect change outside of those systems. And, you know, and I can't say, I can't really say enough about that. It is so, it's so critical that we, first off, it's critical that we understand the true history and that we don't get caught up in the BS. I mean, we are lied to so much in, the, in, this, in this effort to promote American exceptionalism. And I got to tell you, there's nothing more disturbing than hearing a black president stand up and mouth those words, American exceptionalism. Why? Because for any of us who have really looked at that, we know that it's just a modern day euphemism for, for white supremacy. So Americans aren't exceptional. We're all human beings and we all have some of the same needs and we all have some of the same fears and dislikes or if not, or hates, if you will. But you know what? To, to, to suggest that somehow America is exceptional, based on what? It's gross national product? It's a country that was built on slavery and genocide. And, and I know people don't like to hear it. And, and in fact, you know, one of the battles we have over the mascot issue is we get this, this one group of just frauds that suggest, well, we need to eradicate or need to educate, not eradicate. We need to educate people about native issues instead of just eradicating the, the mascots. You're not going to educate people 
about the true history? Because if you did that, then you would surely get rid of your native mascots. Because how would you justify calling yourselves a whole village of white people Indians if you knew the real history, if you knew what your ancestors did to our ancestors? And frankly, if you knew how much you still benefit. You know, one of the stories that, that always comes back, comes back to me and haunts me a little bit is when I was doing the screenings of uh, the documentary on the, the, the Dakota 38 ride, the ride that these men would take. In fact, this last past one that they did this past December might be the last one that they're going to do, at least for a while. Um, but yeah, so the film Dakota 38, one of the producers from, who was from Long Island couldn't understand why the Native people weren't more appreciative of the, of the help they were getting from some of the white folks as they were trying to take on this incredible, incredibly difficult task of doing, uh, recreating that ride in December from, uh, through Minnesota, you know, in, in, the, in the upper you know, Northwest, I mean, Northern Plains. It's, um, it was treacherous. And along the way, these wealthy ranchers oftentimes were, were, would put up their horses for the night or, or a couple of days and while a storm passed or, or do a luncheon for them or whatever else. And, and this one producer of the film couldn't understand why, why all the Native people weren't more appreciative. And how could, how could they not be more gracious about it and that kind of stuff. And, and what he failed to understand is that these affluent white people were affluent because they, had, they were making the money off of the land that came from these Native people in the first place. We live in an environment where we are constantly reminded of what was taken from us. And I'm not just talking about our identity being taken from mascots or, or, or brand labels or whatever else. There's that too, which is a constant reminder. But we live, in a constant, we live with a constant reminder of, of all that we have lost. And, and we're still fighting to maintain and to hold on to some of the small things that we still have. I mean, this... This is what I think most people fail to recognize. And even a guy who's committed a, a portion of his life to producing this film could not understand the difficulty that Native people had with these gracious white people being so generous with their, with their affluence, the affluence that they gained by virtue of being on Native lands in the first place. Now, I'm not saying that they, you know, that the people should have attacked them or anything, but if you can't appreciate that when I hear these ranchers, and I just saw an advertisement just the other day about a family who says, well, if my children take up this ranch, it'll be the fourth generation of my family doing this ranching in Montana or whatever else. And it's like, yeah, and what was before that? What was before that? You know, and, and all these people getting excited about, you know, Yellowstone, the series that streams, you know, I find some of that stuff difficult to watch. Even, even the representation of Native people on the show I find difficult to watch because everything's the extreme, right? There's, there's the extreme racist, and then there's the, the extreme, you know, uh, briefcase warrior, as they call it. And, and there's a whole lot of us that, that are, you know, are saying, look, we're not asking, you know, to win a lawsuit. We're, we're really trying to, to push back in the best way that we can to, uh, to maintain our distinction and our, and our autonomy. And 
You know, I've said it before, and this will be a theme throughout this year. As more and more information comes out on the residential schools, uh, we know that news broke and it continues to break on a regular basis on the Canadian side with this ground penetrating radar um, affirming, and I want to say discovering because most of our people already know that there's these mass burial sites on these, uh, you know, around these old residential schools, but affirming, you know, the body counts beneath the ground uh, that have never been accounted for. As those stories come out, it's really easy for people in the United States to just point north. But the U.S. hasn't even begun the process of um, reckoning with the role that they played in residential schools. Look, Canada learned it from the United States. And the United States had three times more residential schools and, and uh, three times a greater native population in these residential schools than Canada did. So every little bit you see about the abuse that took place in the Canadian residential schools, it's all true and more as far as what took place on the U.S. side. And I dare say the United States isn't good at reckoning their, with their own faults. I mean, they, they want to bury it. That's why you have the right pushing back against critical race theory so much. And nobody wants to acknowledge that the United States is the only country to, you know, to, to drop nuclear bombs on a small island country. No, they didn't drop them in Europe. Don't drop them on white folks. But yeah, we'll drop them on some Asians. But I mean, this is, there's no accountability. There's no ownership for the, the treachery, the inhumanity, the genocide that the United States has committed and continues to commit. I did a show a few weeks ago where I talked about the anniversary of the coup against the Hawaiian kingdom, something the United States still is trying to avoid you know, at every turn. And the, the trouble is that we don't see the successes, you know, again, except for with the mascot issue, that's one of the few fights that we actually see, you know, some success in. We don't see the successes as we're fighting these big fights. And it's difficult because eventually, you know, we suffer from burnout. Not only do we physically just get older and not able to carry on a fight, I look at you know, people younger than me and I hope I can you know, light a fire under them you know, so, so that they'll do what my generation didn't do. And my generation did plenty. It wasn't enough, but we did quite a bit. But there's a lot that, there's a lot that has to be done. And we're, we're really gonna, we really need to count on not just this next generation of Native people, but the next generation of allies. So in spite of people trying to flip the script and make it sound like, oh yeah, this mascot issue is all just about liberal white um, wokeism and that kind of stuff. No, it isn't. You know, the, the fact that we've gotten some, some white folks to, to stand with us is great. But just remember, we need you to stand with us. We don't, we don't need white leaders and white saviors. We need allies. We need accomplices. This is somebody told me. We don't need allies. We need accomplices. We need people who are, who are willing to, you know, get in the dirt a little bit on this stuff. And, you know, I know it's, it's a tough commitment to make, especially, you know, when you look at your own safety and security. And if you're comfortable, it's hard. If you're living a comfortable life, even if you're Native and you're living a comfortable life, it makes it hard to speak up against the, issue, the issues of injustice because somehow you found your comfortable niche within this, you know, these oppressive systems. That's why when I hear people use words like decolonization, decolonization isn't about getting comfortable with oppression. It's about 
dismantling and unraveling ourselves from the systems of oppression. And that's difficult because many of those systems of oppression now uh, have, have native people in those positions. Not just in the, you know, in tribal government, but in uh, the Interior Department, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, well, the Interior Department, uh, you know, lawyers and lobbyists and judges and uh, senators and congressmen. So they oftentimes, you know, will wear that nativeness on their, on their shirt sleeve, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're in touch completely with what we're going through on native territories or what the bigger goal is in terms of trying to maintain and sustain some of that autonomy and distinction. So again, I wanna, um, I wanna thank you guys for uh, putting up with, with this show today because it wasn't a normal show. Um, I don't, like I said, I don't usually do a show about myself, but uh, I felt like I had to explain where I've been. Uh, I do wanna remind people that we are on listener-supported radio, WBAI in New York City. You can support the station by calling 212-209-2950. And I really wish that you would. I, I really do wish that you would call 212-209-2950. Make a donation of any size. Become a WBAI buddy. You can go online and do the same thing, and you can go to give2wbai.org and you know, follow the prompts and make a donation. Where you see a box that allows you to check which show you are making the donation in the name of, please do list resistance radio, not because the money comes to me, but because, um, you know, there, there's somebody keeping a scorecard back there about, you know, who generates money for the station and who doesn't. And, and I'm probably not one of the larger ones. So uh, anybody who makes a donation in the name of the show uh, helps me a little bit. Uh, if you're in Washington, again, I ask that you go to their pledge line for WPFW, which is 202-588-9739, or go online to WPFW dc.org slash donate. Again, same thing, make a donation, one-time donation, time donation, become a sustainable member. Um, if you are, are already a sustainable member for 10 or $15 a month, maybe you can bump that up to, to 20 or 25, well, whatever you can do to support these stations. This is a critical time to have these kinds of voices, these kinds of programs uh, available to you. And um, look, I hope to do more. I apologize for my absence. Uh, I'm hoping as my recovery comes along, I can make my trips back to New York and make my trips to Washington and, and maybe uh, get a chance to come face to face with some of my listeners. Uh, that, that's the plan. So again, I wanna thank you for listening. Uh, this is John Kane. I am John Gain. This is Resistance Radio, and I appreciate you listening and uh, joining the program. Yahweh.